Hi, hope you're all well. I'm Viv and I'm the face behind Skin Farmer Aesthetics in Stockton on Tees. And this Sunday morning, myself and Dr. Sunny are continuing our journey in the use of ultrasound in our aesthetics work. Hi, Lynette, hope you're well. Um, we're speaking this morning or this evening in Melbourne, Australia, with um, a specialist doctor and radiologist. Hi, Sonny. Um, Dr. Morbin Master, who specialises in imaging, and he's a radiologist based in Melbourne, as I mentioned. Hi, Sonny. How are you? Hi, How are you? Fine, fine. It looks like your day is ending, not beginning. Is that right? Yeah, no, it was a it was a bit of a long shift. You're not dressed in scrubs either, so you're obviously not working. I'm not. I'm not. Normally, I would be in my scrubs, but um, as I was just mentioning, we've got um, a fantastic uh, radiologist from Australia joining us this morning yes, or this evening. Yeah. Right. Um, oh, here he is now, Morbin. Uh, nice to uh, nice to see him any second now. Um, we'll we'll let uh, we'll let Morbin talk about his work in uh, imaging. And you can have a good chat with him, I think, Sonny. Yeah, we'll do the usual introductions. And uh, good evening, Mobin. Hey, how are you? Oh, good. We're good. Thank you for thank you for joining us. I'll let I'll let Viv start. Viv, come on, you start. Yeah, yeah. Thanks very much for joining us, Mobin. Uh, it's very kind of you. Uh, it's about nine o'clock in Melbourne. Is that right? Nine a.m. That's right. I'll just fix up the lighting. Oh, no go. problem. That's great. Thanks very much for uh, for joining us. As I said, we thought um, it'd be great to speak to you uh, as a specialist in imaging, aesthetic imaging. Um, we've been talking to different practitioners around the world over the last six months or so, and uh, I thought we both thought you really need to uh, be involved with our uh, weekly chat. So it was uh, it was an idea we thought would be fantastic. You like my hat. I love yes. it, yeah. It's a, it's a Tommy Cooper hat, as we'd say in the UK. The Grand Poobah. Yeah. Exactly, <laughs> exactly. That's, a, that's an awesome but, fez, yes. But okay. um, I, I was speaking to you a little while over the last few days. I'm extremely juvenile, I'm warning you. Oh, no, that's good. We we prefer childish behaviour than uh, adult adult chat. Um, but I was talking to you a little bit about your background, your work, and also your hobbies as well. So I'll let Sonny start off, Morbin, if that's okay. You'll talk a little bit about your background, and I'll talk to you a little bit about your research work and some of the um, research that you've carried out involving cosmetic imaging, if that's okay. Sure. Uh Primarily, my work has been in MRI and ultrasound, but the papers that I have delivered have been in MRI because there is a very big divide which has hopefully been merged a little bit between radiologists or radiology and imaging and aesthetics, which has had a very long, long haul and gap. Plastics in particular have no real interest in radiology and neither do radiologists have interests in plastics you know the only plastics requests we would get in the hospital would be free flaps for example looking at the arterial supply of a muscle or something like that or vascular devascularization or those kind of things in microsurgery and limb reconstruction etc but when it came to cosmetics there was very very little intersection between the two and the way in which and you've asked in the preliminary questions which i uh, happen to have reviewed being uh, as, as nerdy as possible, the uh, 
the reason why I got into the cosmetics is because I report varicose vein imaging and reflux for various phlebologists. And traditionally, uh, cosmetic radiology was named maybe 10 years ago in a very vague form by a few phlebologists, etc., regarding the cosmetics of varicose veins and skin changes, etc. And I was reporting that in a clinic that was owned by the same guy that's a sonographer and a good friend of mine that worked with me in the public hospital. And I was doing that privately. And he also is involved and owns a skin laser clinic that didn't really have an injectable section. They had an injector that came in from time to time, but they weren't really satisfied with the patient uh, interaction, etc. The patients weren't because they have a very high standard of uh, care and very high maintenance patients, which is fine. And he said, you should get into this. And this is over five. I, I can't believe now it's 2016. It's probably 15, 16. So it's over six years now since I started actually doing, I did a bit of tox, started with that. And then after a while I started getting requests and in particular, you'd know Gavin Chan, you yeah. would have heard of him. famous. He sent me the first real imaging request of ultrasound guided dissolve, which was the post septal publication that I delivered. And I had over a period of a year or two, another two post septal cases, confirmed on MR, and I dissolved under ultrasound guidance under the globe. And one of them, the first one, unfortunately, went to surgery because she was, wasn't fully satisfied. But the second two avoided actual surgery, which was a great result. So the origin is really from varicose veins, and I started doing injecting, and then I started getting requests from others, hey, can you look at this under ultrasound because you've got that skill already. So it, it, and, and then I started merging more and more, and next thing you know it, overfilled faces and requests going, is this swelling or is this filler? Is this filler? Is this fat? And a lot of the time it was filler. Yeah. Majority of the time, oh, this is three years old. Could it be filler? Request after request after request. So that's basically the origin and the, the rest is history. So there's more stuff coming as well, which is exciting. Maybe not. Yeah. So, I mean, that, that the, I think the, the YouTube video that you, you and Gavin Chan did, um, I think, this is a while back now. I mean, that's a lot of turning point. I think that's a lot of us have come across your work originally and followed from there. Um, so what do you do now in terms of splitting your time between imaging and aesthetics? Where, how, obviously, you've merged the two a little bit, but how does your, how's your time spent in sort of clinical practice? So in clinical practice, I spend still three quarters of my time in a public practice. Yeah. Hospital setting, which is all the serious stuff, biopsies, injections, reporting, counting nodules and nodes, which is awfully exciting, but it is what it is. And, and this is, this is uh, given me a new breath of air in this cutting edge specialty because is uncharted territory, which is so exciting. So it's got me interested, more interested in radiology and being one of the only radiologists really pushing and cutting the mustard in this area. It's just made it more interesting and exciting for me. So I do one, day a week and an evening on a Thursday. And I try to take Fridays off. I try to have a good work-life balance, but that also gives me time to do research in my own time, etc. So three days a week, I'm in the hospital and one very large day in cosmetics, which is, you know, 9.30 in the morning till six o'clock at night. And then I go home and do the things that I need to do. And then seven or eight o'clock at night till nine or 10 o'clock at night that Thursday, but I finished my 40 to 50 hours in four days, right. smashed, but then I've got a long weekend. 
Now, we, we can't not mention it, but you do a few other things as well that's outside. Obviously, you developed yourself as a part of personal. Just for everyone watching who doesn't know you, what else do you do other than the radiology? Well, um, nude, nude golf, um, and okay. also adult trainer as well. Okay. But I also, uh, I also do. Uh, I didn't have. I'm in a different lab today. You can see this is the studio. There's a wow. platform. There's a gold record that we've just printed out recently as well for the cover version of Show Me Love. I love, I love, I love equipment. Oh, you can actually see. Here we go. Got a picture of a face in the background too. There's my speakers. There's my studio. There's some LED lights. Now it's like, oh, and there's some guitars here as well. There you go. Hanging up there too. Brilliant, brilliant. So uh, there is life outside. There is life outside medicine then. That's right. Since I was a child, I kept it up, and then I started doing production of dance music in medical school in the nineties. Okay. And it kind of eventually paid off and turned into a very extravagant hobby, hobby that sort of almost became a second career. So I do manage to do with the orchestra at the moment every few months. Brilliant. One of the questions that people were asking, especially in the UK, is that the I mean, we were, we were at um, the uh, CMAC conference recently. I don't know if you uh, or one of your, I'm sure you heard about that. Yeah, yeah. No, so a very good conference uh, sponsored by Clarius, ultrasound manufacturer. So obviously, mm -hmm. you know, imaging is now on the agenda very much so. And obviously, we've been talking about it for the past six months. Um, yeah. One of the things that we struggle with in the UK is about complications. Do you, and as the more senior you get, the more kind of complications kind of come across your way. How did you cope with that? Obviously, you've got that strong background in imaging, but how did you sort of cope with people now starting to say complications for something that's unprecedented, something that's completely new? Did you consider it a challenge or did you consider, consider it a problem in having to help patients? Help patients, my own patients or referrals? from Or referrals, other, like... yes. Just, I mean, I'm, I'm sure they were just coming thick and fast. Yeah, so... When I first started, I wasn't using a lot of imaging and, you know, I had a couple of us, you know, I'm an honest injector. I had some complications, obviously, tox, you, you get an eyelid drip or you, you, hit, you hit the resorius. Oh, it's annoying. I hit, you know, and I, if it's, it depends on the size of the face, but you'd learn, right? You learn yeah. through these things. And I think there was one submental artery that was clinically resolved on their own. I sent to a dermatologist early, early in the piece before I started ultrasound. Since I've been using ultrasound of the face, which is a different world even for the radiologist because the vessels are smaller, the face anatomy is not a common thing the radiologists know at all. I asked them about the supply of the supraorbital and supratrochlear in the Royal Australasian College Australian uh, scientific annual scientific meeting and no one knew the, that it was an internal supply because it's not something that we commonly use. They look in the brain, you you look for tumors, you know, so it's not a common thing that we come across. So over a period of about two or three years, I started using more and more ultrasound and getting more referrals at this stage. Now, depending on the week, now we're pre Christmas. It's a lot of cosmetic work. Yeah. But prior to that, I would say, for example, two weeks ago, I saw 17 patients over the day, about 12 were, complications or long-term issues from dermal filler, which I have to try to resolve. So I, that's the, that's 50% or 60% of my work is correctional. So I'm used to it and it's, it's complicated in a lot of ways, but I try to simplify it as much as possible using MRI road mapping, which yeah. I mentioned in the first paper 
and then using the ultrasound to translate that in my brain while I've got the screen up to where the issue is. And most commonly, as we know, it's around the orbits. Yep. Yep. No, classically, classically. Viv, go on. I've been hogging Morgan's time. No, Viv. no problem. Thanks for, uh, thanks for telling us a little bit about your background, uh, Morgan. Very kind of you. Um, you mentioned um, about the research work that you do. It's, um, it's in your own time. There's, there's little funding that's provided to carry this out. How do you find the, your ability to do um, research work on top of your normal work? Look, I manage recently, for example, I've, uh, I've been naughty at the hospital because I'm a public hospital, you get the benefits. I'm getting a lot of or applying for a lot of leave, annual leave, long service leave, all that kind of stuff. We get some great benefits. It's not the NHS. It's great in Australia. <laughs> we, get after, we get CPD two weeks a year so I can go to conferences. So I do have the, the luxury of being able to take some annual. And because it was pandemic, I took no leave over that period of time. So I've accrued a lot of leave. So I use that leave to do those kind of things. And during pandemic, I wrote a lot of my papers sitting in front of the TV, just in the, you know, we were just, you know, wife sitting there and just saying, what are you doing? And she's just enjoying herself. But I was sitting there just writing papers and we still scan people. We are still allowed to scan people in terms of funding. I funded my latest paper, the previous papers, the patients do pay for a service because they've got a problem. So there's no ethics issues. MRI also has no harm because generally you're not giving contrast. And if you give contrast, it's for the purposes of diagnosis. So those papers were written for the purposes of a diagnosis. There was no ethics issues. And I think the patients pay a fee, which is very minimal for an MRI and what they get out of it. The latest paper, I did a prospective and a retrospective trial. I've got 33 patients, which is very exciting. And it's the largest clinical trial on longevity on MRI. And the resi results, I won't give it away, but the inclusion criteria was has not had filler for two years. And yeah, I can't wait. We're, we're now writing up. My brother's a radiologist too. So he double read some of the scans. Eight of them were a bit off. So we might have to go back to those. But the others were very, very close in terms of how much filler has remained uh, longevity wise, residual filler. So it's got two ra radiologists, double blinded, as well as a trainee or registrar who's, who's doing uh, a bit of work for me as well. He's, he's very, very good. And he's interested in becoming a radiologist or aesthetician or both, you know, you, you don't know. So it'd be you know, interesting to see the results of your work uh, Morgan, over the next uh, year or so. Yeah. I don't, I don't think, hopefully no one's actually beat me to it, but I think in terms of MR, I don't think maybe there's an ultrasound paper with longevity, but I think the MR paper is going to be great and it's going to be tabled nicely as much product as we can sort of consider and mention. No, I can, I can tell you at least to begin with, there's no real standouts. I think the reality is when it comes to pharmaceuticals, it's how long the product has been in the market, right? Oh, our product is better. You've only been around for two years, so sorry. Will your own, you know, will your will, controversially will your paper be naming brands or will it be just HF? Yeah, absolutely. Not not standout brands in terms of numbers, etc. But which contributed to the paper and which products were used. One of our biggest issues, and you probably have the same problem in the UK, if not probably potentially worse, is because of 
the the we've got a bit more restrictions than you have in the UK yeah. is the history taking and the information from the patients. How many dissolves? How many previous injections? What volume? What location? What depth? You don't. You know, and if there was any need for clarification, I did pick up the phone and try to get some history from the actual clinical uh, clinicians as much as possible. You know, the, and the patients don't know either. Now in Australia, we legally have to sh give the lot number sticker. Yeah. The lot number sticker, and it says one point whatever mil, and give it to the patient. Yeah. Yeah. Amazing. Um, Certainly, so we will be looking forward to the results of your work uh, over the next year or so, Morbin. Um, thanks very much. Um, I thought we'd go through a couple of the research papers that you've um, written over the last few years. The first yep. one that you mentioned was the um, post-septal hyaluronic acid filler issue yep. um, using guided ultrasound. Can you tell us a little bit about this research that you carried out? Sure. Well, um, I might take the liberty in turning my camera around and uh, yeah. showing you the patient here. Right. So this patient who was directly post-filler treatment, she had a few cycles of dissolve and then re-injection. And uh, she's given me full consent, so she doesn't mind. She's cool about it. She had 12 months of post-dissolve because she wasn't happy with the result. This is directly post. It was all puffy after that right eye. Then 12 months post, you can see that. And she ended up getting an MR, which happens to be the private radiology firm that I also work for. I might just turn off that little light in the background there. Ah, radiologists like the dark. <laughs> Hold on a second. If you give me one second, it's this light here. We're all about lighting. And that's another tip for anyone who's a budding uh, ultrasound, you know, who's got interest in ultrasound. You have to have the room dark. Otherwise, you're not going to see. You have reflect. If you've got natural light, you get reflection in your screen. You're not going to be able to see properly. So, and it's hard for us because we're used to looking at the patient, aren't we? Yes. So, so it makes it tricky. You do need to be in the dark. So, this patient anyway had the MR. This bright stuff here, as you can see, look at all that bright stuff, right? Now that's in the SUF deep layer. That's infraorbital fat. That's the SUF. Now this is a bit higher. Now. I think it was a cannular injection, but with a lateral cannular injection or a lateral approach, potentially you are above the orbicularis retaining ligament because the ORL is slightly lower on the lateral orbital rim. So if you're above it, you can end up in the eyelid or see that? So if yep. you're injecting higher up, you can see that this is not supposed to be there. I'll go back. I'll scroll, scroll through. Hold on. So I'm looking at that blob there, that blob there. It's gone over the top of the ORL and into the post-septal space. There it is there, right? And that is just soup filler, which would have been perfectly fine. But because theoretically you can see all that filler from lateral to medial, it's come over the top of the ORL inadvertently and ended up under the actual globe. So that's what happened with that case. And this is the demonstration of, you know, this is the anatomy here. You can see it's in the post-septal location. There's your orbital septum. But I think the lateral approach was the cause. So this is where the probe has been placed over the orbital rim. And you can see that's the needle position. Your needle has to be directly in the middle of the beam. If you are 
to one side of the beam, you're not going to see your needle. You have to be if you want to see your needle in long. So this is an example of a bit of superficial HA. This is not actually the post-septal stuff, but you can see the needle tip. There's the hypoechoic, black hypoechoic. This is echogenic, bright echoes. Fat is bright on ultrasound. Fluids, like that little hypoechoic blob there in the center, is black, hypo. So this blob was hyaluronic acid. That's where the needle is. And that's an example of how you get rid of, uh, you know, nodulectomies, I guess people are talking about. And this is just a video showing what we did to find the globe and avoid the globe. I, to be honest, I didn't actually see the post-septal filler under ultrasound, but I went directly inferior to the globe and gave it about 100 units of hyaluronidase. And that managed to get rid of it. So you can actually see that round ball in the video coming in, coming in, coming in. I think there might have been a bit of hypoechoic stuff. I just play again and you can see I was talking there. As he fans, fanning is when you move the probe. See, I was going up. That's fanning up. That's the globe. He's fanning up towards the globe. So what he did is fan down just inferior to the globe and then made sure that my needle wasn't in the globe <laughs> and I was just under. And you can see the before and after we managed to get rid of a lot of it. Wow. But what happened was, and you can see this is the before and after, you can see the new crease has formed. It means, therefore, you know, part, the postceptal filler was causing some bulging of that orbital area, but, you know, the patient was not happy. And she ended up going to surgery. And in retrospect, you know, it's, it's a learning process. This is my first case. I think I missed a small amount that might have been causing the tainting of that globe right in there up against the TT, tear trough, tear trough ligament, right up against there. So if I got a needle right up against there and tried to dissolve that area, that could have potentially avoided surgery, but she may not have still been happy. So see that little little area there? Yeah. This orbital rim, that's that brightish, shiny stuff, which is HA. And as you know, in the skin, it's shiny and it looks, you know, you get the Tyndall effect. And there's, there's your muscle, orbicularis. So they've lifted it off and he got rid of it. So I think, I think an important point is that when you're injecting, this is me DJing at a club, shooting <laughs> CO2 and confetti everywhere, especially under pressure, it goes a lot further than you think. In hindsight, Mobin, do you think, okay, well, I mean, hindsight's a great thing, isn't it? You know, you could have bought crypto in 2000, whatever, whatever. But in hindsight, would you have maybe gone down, referred to surgeons or oculoplastic surgeons um, sort of learning from that, you know, the cosmetic, this is a problem for, we often find is that whatever thing, whatever thing, whatever thing we're doing is right. Sometimes a patient doesn't like the cosmetic result. So she ended up having yeah. surgery. So in hindsight, would you have now recognized that sort of case of saying, right, well, that just goes to plastic surgeons or would you still go down the same route? I, I would have, I would have gone down the same route, but yeah. I, because experience and the number of cases, I guess I've done, I think it's, it's at least a hundred, just for orbital issues and resolution of them, I think we're getting into over 100 now for me. Wow. Wow. So we've done 120, 130 MRIs in the last few, year, year, few years that are purely cosmetic or face MR, face MR protocol that I mentioned in that study. Uh, the, yeah, so the number of, it's just sheer case number and experience. I probably would have looked at the MR again and went right up against that tear trough into right up against that 
in a canthus area and under yeah. ultrasound tried to stab that small volume and it should have resolved i've had a lot of cases vast majority do get resolved without surgery so that's the whole purpose of course of papers to avoid surgery i wouldn't have gone straight to ocular plastics and the surgeons don't want it either they prefer really? not to do it okay. yeah great there was um there was another um research uh, piece that you did um Robin. this was about um, long-term MRI follow-up of uh, high hyaluronic acid dermal filler. Can you tell us a little bit about the work you did here? So this, this one is actually is on one of my talks as well. You can see it's actually an experiment on my own face. So <laughs> I had a total of uh, four mil in one session of restylane define and i had superficial fans in the lateral temporal uh, superficial fat compartment the fans up here and here to really just give it a bit of a lift it's like the liquid facelift i don't know you know you probably would have i don't know whether you use that terminology and then a whole bunch of filler in the chin and what happened was we followed it up over 18 months and you can see the fans are here there's your vessel that's probably the uh the superficial temporal vein over there. There's your fans, right? Now, what happened over 18 months, you can see they're degraded. It's still there, but it kind of looks blurry and they've merged together. And look at, she also did in the lateral uh, temporal superficial fat compartment, in the same compartment, but over the jawline, you see these three fans? They've kind of merged into a sheet as well, but it's still there. And if you have a look here, over this period of time, day three, 18 months, you can see this, this is the actual injection you're looking at. I've got filler from a year before still sitting in the SUF, but let's ignore that because I didn't scan it straight away. So I can't really talk about that because we didn't have a baseline. But this stuff here, over the zygoma and laterally, a little bit more dotty, still there after 33 months. So this is proving longevity, but interestingly, look at the chin clinically before, after looks great. My chin looks rubbish after that. I hadn't changed my weight either. But this is directly after. 18 months post, the chin seems to be almost completely resolved. It was a lower dose, but it's interesting that it resolved a bit quicker. And it seemed to resolve quicker than if you had, you know, in, in the mid-face, seems to last longer than the chin area and the study that is coming is mid face which i think is the most common area it would be wouldn't it mid face yeah and it would make sense that it lasts a bit longer potentially because the lymphatic system as we know degrades over time the movement in the area is less you don't have the jugular chain and the big node drainages submental drainages so close either and as we know around the orbit Mendelssohn had wrote a paper that it runs either along the nasolabial fat, runs up and over and across, or through into the deep cheek fat. And if you block it, you're going to end up with more swelling and it sticks around potentially more because of the poor lymphatics in that area. And the orbicularis acts as a sphincter to get rid of fluid, right? Yeah. You start putting filler and disabling the lymphatics down there and you've got your orbicularis. I've had many cases where they've done Toxin. Botox in the yeah, yeah, yeah. which is worse. You've seen that before? Yes, yes, definitely. 
Mobin, you're, um, I mean, this is fascinating work, innovative, and I can't wait to see the paper. And, I, and also, a little bit cheekily, I can't wait to see how much this is picked up by the industry because this is not what, you know, reps coming in, telling us all about HA, what we're now learning, and obviously from your work, is basically you've got an implant that loses its clinical effectiveness, but the implant is still there. So yes. what's your view on, I mean, you know, you're a key opinion leader without a doubt of your own. What do you know, what are we saying then to the filler companies, the pharmaceutical industry about how they need to change how they are the narrative, basically? I mean, you're changing the narrative with your work. What's your um, what's your opinion on it? It's very difficult to tell. We're still early stages in these findings. However, if we are now changing the paradigm from a temporary filler to a semi-permanent filler, then us as injectors need to change before the pharmaceuticals change yeah. their narrative. They will eventually have to catch up. There's no doubt. And there's also some new studies coming out regarding the immune response that occurs every time you place a cross-linked filler into the face with the good old BDDE, which is, you know, part of the causal response. I'm not sure how quickly they're responding at this stage, but correct me if I'm wrong, the the shows are reducing their volumes nowadays, aren't they? The, you know, the big, definitely, definitely, you know, shows where they used to do 15 mil all at once, etc. I think they've reduced their doses to go, look, I've got a result with this much. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. But yeah. Go, what, what, what can we, I mean, what can, what can, <laughs> we're pretty powerless <laughs> pharmaceutical companies, aren't we? Yes. But one of your one of your um, research pieces, the final piece I was going to show, Mobin, looks at monitoring of high hyaluronic acid using MRI, and it was uh, it was a protocol protocol that you're developed that you've developed to looking at the use of MRI. So, what what do you think is the future of um, MRI in terms of monitoring uh, filler treatments? Look, I think MRI is very useful for old filler. So it, this protocol is quite simple. It'll be very difficult to institute in the NHS, I think, because it's a public system. It's more of a private company. The NHS could include it and then create an out-of-pocket charge, but I know how it works. It's very similar to Medicare. It's just too hard basket for them. I tried the public hospital. I tried these guys, those guys, everywhere in public, no interest. So I went straight to the private company that I've worked for and did some locums for and they supported me 150% in this protocol and we've done as I've said you know over over 100 cases or more at least in the last few years with a comfort now with this protocol and it takes only 15 minutes and limited sequences are only needed so there's a T1 sequence which is your anatomy right there's a T1 sequence which is you know T1 is basically shows the anatomy, the muscles, etc. So you know where you are. And then the other one is the T2, which is the one that you commonly see in my papers, all the bright white stuff, you know. So this is, for example, this is T1 and T2 on this case in super of superficial filler demonstrated here. That's your T2. And we saturate fat. So fat is black and T2 is bright. 
And that's actually the eyelids in this patient. So that was an interesting case. And she, uh, she was actually on a YouTube video as well and very frustrated and uh, worked, I think, with ocular plastic surgeons who said it couldn't have been filler causing this. And she had a small amount of highlays done clinically by Gavin Chan, 150 units, just superficially, and look at her result. And they said there's no way there's filler because it was, I think, here we go, where is it? No filler for two years. So there you go. And, it, you know, we got rid of it. That was just, that was actually infraorbital fat, that case. This is a, a ripper case of T2 fat sat. Again, just the fat sat sequence. This sequence does the whole face in about three and a half to four minutes, four to five minutes maximum. It takes a bit more time because fat saturation requires a bit more acquisition. And then I did an ultrasound afterwards because that looks like, see that? That's eyelid. There's your globe. That's an eyelid. Bright stuff. Shouldn't be bright unless she's crying. Anyway, there's the filler under ultrasound. There's your palpable portion of your orbicularis. There's your skin. So that's beautifully demonstrated. I stuck a, stuck a needle and uh, dissolved it. I can't show her clinical photos because she hasn't given uh, consent for that. So got to do the right thing. <laughs> thanks. Thanks a lot, Morbin. Uh, covered a lot of information in a short space of time there. So I've got to thank you for that. Um, myself and Sonny, we, we started this series of lives really just for other practitioners to understand our own journey in using ultrasound. And we spoke to lots of specialists like yourself, looking at other areas, including imaging, using MRI. For any practitioners watching this evening um, who, are may, who may be saying, well, all this imaging business, it's all fine, but I don't need it in my work. I don't have the problems you seem to think are an issue. What would you say to them? What, what, based on your in, advice, based on your experience, what, what words of wisdom would you give them, Norbin? So this is all research which is very useful for us to know about longevity, how to treat filler with far more respect than we used to have when we first just put it in. Because when you're putting it in, you're considering one day, I'm going to have to take it out. Consent, of course. This research also tells us that in my consent form, I put the filler can last for up to 10 to 15 years. Oh, I put yeah. that in my consent form now because it can. We've already got clear evidence. I had another patient, hadn't had any filler for six years. I'm going to throw her on to my, I forgot it's 30, 33 patients. I picked up another one. She hadn't had anything for six years and her MR was positive. So yes, this is all well and good. However, I use ultrasound in my everyday practice now. And yes, it's well and good to go to a course. I think the in injectors should consider using it in their practice. Since I've been using it in my practice in dangerous areas, virgin faces, forehead I did recently and temples which I didn't want to touch for six years <laughs> petrified of it petrified I'm starting to do it with some confidence but live so I know exactly where I am and I tell you what when you're sticking a cannula right next to the FSTA and people are trending the superficial plane blindly I would never ever recommend it because recently we had a whole bunch of superficial temporal artery occlusions and even some alopecia etc that needed to be dissolved under ultrasound if you're going to do these areas ultrasound is a very very good tool it's just going to take time for you to integrate it into your practice get a good quality machine go to a course but practice on yourself yeah. find your arteries 
find your filler because a lot of them, a lot of practitioners will have filler in their face. They can find their own filler, right? Look around for it, see where you can find it, see where it's gone. Inject patients if you do blindly, that's fine. Get an ultrasound on it straight afterwards. Add an extra 15 minutes on your cases and scan them straight after, before and after. It's fantastic. Look for the arteries beforehand if you can and pre-map. If it's a high-risk area, for example, I would look at this is high risk and also the forehead, for example. You need to do that from under ultrasound from the outset and live under ultrasound. Pre-mapping is useful if you are looking for anomalies. So you know where the infraorbital artery is. We know where the facial artery is. Yeah. Area that you want to inject. So if you're injecting the medial fat, deep fat, I'm going to go medial deep fat. I'm going to use ultra deep. I'm going to use, you know, any of those products. Just have a scan of that area. Make sure it's avascular or there's no bizarre vessel, which I've seen before where there was a communication across from the infraorbital came out superficially and went across and communicated with the transverse facial. And that person had ischemia. So she had to get a dissolve. And then we ended up injecting with a cannula and deep and avoiding going straight through with a needle because that's how she ended up with the ischemia. So map the area and make sure it's avascular. If it isn't avascular and you're going to be dancing with a vessel, then if you just need to increase volume and it doesn't have to be that precise, then do it live under ultrasound. If it's avascular, put the probe down and then inject in the avascular area. And you'll find that your bruising, your swelling, your phone calls, they all seem to... I'm really knocking wood right now. I don't want to jinx myself, but it's it's been a game changer truly for complications for me. Amazing. Man, I, I don't think there's a better person we could speak to about this whole issue of uh, fillers and complications and longevity problems, you know, based on the fact that fillers are uh, present uh, for a lot longer than people believe. Um, so we'd like to thank you for all the uh, all the chat that you've given us uh, this evening, uh, Morbin. Um, I just wondered if there was any questions at all, Sonny. Was there any questions that popped up? Uh, no, a little bit quiet, Aaron, because it's the morning. Um, yeah. But a lot of people watching, which is really good. But uh, no, I think they've, if, if it's things like me, I've just been awed uh, by Mobin's work and also what you've just explained. We couldn't have said it any better. So thank you, Mobin. Appreciate it. And if you look, if they're, um, I'm, I'm happy to take any emails from practitioners, etc., even on cases. So I'm not insured for international cases. I get a lot of questions from patients, etc., directly. But practitioner to practitioner, I'm always happy to help. You've got my WhatsApp now. If there's an issue, you know, I'm more than happy to help. I can even do a live video call if you've got an ischemia and you've got an ultrasound machine and I'm available. I'm happy to guide you through it. If you even can get a sonographer and mark out the area. We did a case that was a VO and it was done remotely and she resolved because we got a sonographer in that I knew in South Australia in another state and she had a look found where the vessel actually was occluded, which was all the way in the hairline, which wasn't flooded. It wasn't expected. And the whole FSTA area was ischemic because what happens is, as you know, it's a choke vessel and the proximal FSTA was going, nope, I'm closing up. And the whole area became ischemia. We marked it there. 
in the scalp. The practitioner wasn't accredited to inject in the radiology department, so took the patient to the clinic and injected in that area we marked. And within 24, 48 hours, it started resolving. And then because she presented after four days, it took about four to five days to improve. I usually put them on aspirin and um, uh, hot packs as well. No vasodilators, that's gone. Yeah. Uh, but I'm happy, you know, to try to help out practitioner to practitioner. And if you want to see more on what I do or contact, I've got a contact form on my website, aestheticradiology.com.au. That's amazing. That's Amazing. Got to thank you a lot for that, Morgan. Um, that's pretty much it. We've been talking for about 40 minutes now. So thank you very much for taking part in this evening's uh, live with us. Um, Sonny and I will be back next week, next Thursday. We haven't got a guest currently for next week, so we'll probably end up just having a chat about different aspects of our work. Um, but hopefully we'll perhaps do another live with you later on next year just to see how things have changed in terms of your work and your research, Morgan, if that's all right. Absolutely, we can. And if look, I might be able to help you with a guest next week if you like. There's there's plenty of awesome experts in Australia that I could throw at you. Definitely throw them out. And and we would definitely, as soon as you publish, we'd really like to push and get it out there to, you know, the people that are that, that are watching here in the UK because I think it's just so important. It's just something that's <laughs> underutilized. This kind of research and evidence base is just so underutilized in in our end of the world anyway. So we would mm. greatly appreciate it going on. But anyway, I'll stop talking. Absolutely, brilliant. Thank you very much, Morbid. Um, as I say, we're back next Thursday, 8.30, and we wish you all the well in your work and your research, Morbid. Um, anybody that wants to follow you, you're on Instagram, Master underscore MD. Is that right? That's yeah. correct. And there's a link to your website that practitioners can follow. Plenty of research work that you've done and practitioners can follow you on PubMed, etc. Um, but really, just to say a big thank you again, and we'll be back next Thursday at 8.30. So thank, thank you very much. Thanks for hosting us. Thank you. Bye-bye. Thanks a lot. Thank